Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Hey there, VJ. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Hey, hey. Um, our featured guest is Zach Lindsay. Um, Zach Lindsay's poems are published or forthcoming in Agni, Court Green, New England Review, Poetry, and Elsewhere. Lindsay is the recipient of scholarships to the Kenyan, Kenyan, um, Kenyan Review Writers Workshop and the Siwani Writers Conference and lives in Tallahassee where they serve as editor-in-chief to Southeast Review and teach poetry. Welcome, Zach. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Um, so why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about your own writing and uh, some of the obsessions, some of the themes of your writing and some things that come up a lot in uh, poems you've written. And then we can listen a little bit, to, a little bit to your work and then we can discuss a little bit more of your role as an editor, yeah. Why don't we start with your sure. Writer, yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, themes. I like the terms obsessions. Um, I've heard that obsessions are kind of the guiding force for poetry. I've heard it said um, and that you come back to the, some of the same obsessions frequently. For me, um, I think queerness, addiction, and spirituality are kind of those central obsessions. Um, and they're all interrelated. Um, what does it mean to be a queer individual in an assumptively heteronormative space? Um, what does it mean for addiction to be a definitive part of one's lived experience? Um, and how, how do I uh, become or access uh, becoming as a whole being in the midst of those two things? Um, those would be, those would be the, the topics that I come back to most and love most importantly um, I think one of one of the more difficult things uh, is reaching toward uh, connection, um, uh, despite struggles with those three primary foci. Um, yeah, I originally thought uh, over the last few years I, I came to start this PhD program. Uh, given the way things were going, I thought that I was going to be writing a book of love poems. Um, and I've ended up with something uh, that's very much not a book of love poems. It starts to work toward that uh, in the third section of the manuscript, um, that accessing love is difficult. <laughs> How do you mean accessing love? Is that to meet someone, to be open to someone? Is it, external? <laughs> is it outward facing or inward facing? Sure. Um, it's it's craft based. Um, I'm, I'm in a long-term relationship and the difficulty is craft based. Um, ooh, yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the primary considerations anytime I write a poem is who's reading, um, and what do they need to hear? Um, not only what is my experience and what do I have to share, but, um, what is a readership looking for? Um, and I suppose I find it very difficult, and many poets find it very difficult right now um, to speak to uncomplicatedly good experiences. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, and and of course, love is never an uncomplicated experience, um, but it's it's complicated more so by a hundred years of experimentation and form 
Um, and at this point, uh, what I would consider a kind of lane to sleep of the irony of modernism. Um, and so I, I'm not interested in approaching love ironically. I'm not interested in approaching it obliquely. And if I am, am interested in approaching that, approaching it honestly, that requires a lot of investigation into what affords me uh, the luxury of happiness, what affords me the luxury of, of romance. Um, and frankly, how do I fall short? Uh, mm. Those questions tend to come up first as soon as I put love into my mind. And I try to keep the poems out of my mind in an experience, but it, that head just keeps getting in the way. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think also it's like, we think about love in terms of so many different facets to love, the, the romantic love, the compassionate love, the love for community, love for self. There's so many different mm -hmm. ways into that idea of love that uh, I question like, um, you know, what is it? What Like maybe one way into it is easier than others, you know? Like sometimes uh, love for community or love for self can be just as trying as romantic love mm -hmm. or it might be easier for some people. You know, mm -hmm. so what is your take on that? Yeah. Um, is there any particular kind of love that you find easier than like maybe if you have a pet or something like or, you know? <laughs> kind of yeah, uh, I think love for mm, mm, uh, for community was probably the, the order in which I've discovered those three different forms recently was community first. Uh, self second and then romantic third yeah um learning how to be part of uh the world <laughs> uh, is kind of a necessary path into self-love um it's very difficult for example it, it was in my experience very difficult to be um a queer person in texas uh, in uh, a religious family um took many years work um, to get to a place where I could accept uh, acceptance from my community because there's always the, the threat of uh, rejection um, in that type of environment. Um, so that was the first work that I had to do. And, and you know, maybe, maybe this isn't in the right order, but um, I think part of what makes it easier for me to love community is also that there's less vulnerability I'm here talking about, you know, it as being a necessarily dangerous type of love, but there's also less vulnerability um, in loving an abstraction like community. Yeah. Um, that's amorphous and shifting. If this community doesn't work for me, I can reject it and move on to the next. If, uh, you know, that, that brand has been too hot and long in a fire, then, you know, I can avoid it and move on to the next. Uh, you can't escape from self. And I've discovered in the last few years uh, the extent to which you have to get to know and love the self in order to be in a relationship is it, it's very uh, intimidating. <laughs> and maybe I'm late to this. I, I didn't have enough practice in high school or in early age, I guess. But, um, you know, I'm, 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 yeah, that one's a, a toughie. Uh, well, rewarding, I of course. Yeah, I don't think it's late or early because uh, being in an almost 40-year marriage myself, um, it's always day one, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, um, you're, you're evolving and learning together. And uh, it's always that, as you say, the path of self 
the, mm-hmm. the intimate other and the community, that's a very interesting triangle to think about that because it really takes all of that to, to make something work. And um, you yeah. may enter into it at different stages, but uh, it's, uh, it's a constant practice to, to maintain that. And so when you go to writing and sort of your, your craft questions and things like that, um, do you find writing a love poem to be different than a, uh, an anger poem, a rave or a rant, uh, or, or a, oh, gee, I just saw a rose in the, in the willow or whatever. Right. How, right. how does love change poetics in a way? Does it call for different forms? Does it put you in a different place? Yeah. I love, uh, I think you answered the question when you said that it's always day one. Uh, in a relationship. I love that. Um, that's very true to my experience. It is, it's always a waking up into something new, even if you have habits, you know, or patterns, um, some familiarity, there's uh, less history. Um, when I teach poetry, most students gravitate toward the type of telling uh, that my most of my poems, or at least a third of my poems, uh, do, which is narrative. Uh, it's temporal. Um, you know, it's driven by experience and fact. <laughs> um, and I think diving into one's own history or someone else's history or, you know, I, an idea is um, easier. It's more familiar uh, or seemingly so than uh, espousing from a place of deep emotion um, it's easier to say, well, I, you know, I was born somewhere in New Jersey. That's a fact. I can move on from that one. Now, how do I arrange that interestingly? Um, and most of my poetry, because I, I'm very new to the game, has been, uh, well, let me take a fact and see what I can do with it. Um, because I'm figuring out how the mechanics of this thing work. Um, whereas writing a Oh my gosh, I'm still, I'll have to get back to you once I've figured out how to write a love poem. Um, I have a few <laughs> attempts. Um, but yeah, those come from present emotions that are, um, that it's almost, I don't know, I feel almost rude trying to put them somewhere. Okay. They want to be these, uh, you know, bright, sparkly watercolors that just kind of like extend across the sky. And I'm like, here's a box. It's 14 lines long. And I would like you to, you know, operate very politely within those confines. Um, my, my love poems often turned into apologies or confessions. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would go to say, um, I'd go to say how much I admire the bridge of someone's nose and, uh, and, and the associations would bring me right back to addiction. (laughs) Well, I think it's love has to be couched in an action going back to my, uh, Mm -hmm. my drama school background, you know, that in some ways, um, put making the action of it, if it's an admiration, if it's an apology, if it's an observation, if it's a gesture of some kind, helps to activate it uh, on the page in a way. It gives you kind of a, what those 14 lines, how they move and what they turn into can be, an action can sometimes help solve that. But yeah. So also yeah. it seems like uh, we were talking a little bit about interconnectedness and how interconnectivity mm-hmm. and how we're all kind of mirrors of this narrative 
Uh, I think in your pre-interview questions, you're discussing how you um, don't believe in isolation and aloneness because it's uh, yeah. we're composed of this interconnected interdependence. Um, so it's interesting how the conversation has kind yeah. of been about you know, kind of reflecting on our personal journey, but then also how that personal mm -hmm. journey is informed by others' journey, the journeys of others. Yeah. So yeah, it's a beautiful fact of uh, the world as we understand it, even in, in even in the places we don't understand that we are not composed of separate materials. Yeah. Um, the the stuff that brings me physical substance to my body. Uh, grows around me and is as impacted by uh the rise of the sun as i am as you know as phoebus was in his time um and yeah i suppose now when sorry i just got self-conscious because i made a, a stupid reference to greek mythology <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we're there we're with you go along yeah um <laughs> but yeah i yeah, I lost my train of thought. We're talking about connectedness. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, here's a question for you, because I know you, uh, my perception of um, people, younger work, younger people in the workforce, people in school and so forth, is that there's a generational shift in the concept of togetherness. You know, I grew up the me generation, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of boomer rebel mentality, um, very much it was my life journey and I will conquer. And I think that uh, people in your cohort are just, they. it would not occur to me to focus so much on togetherness and, and uh, community hmm. as a core personal uh, value as, as you have here. And I, I don't know if you cool. observe that differentiation in age as well among your professors or older people in your life or... Hmm. Yeah, that's that's cool. It makes me think about um, how frequently um, going sorry teaching again um, when I assign kind of general composition essays. How frequently students want to talk about social media, um, and I think it's because it's just the the fact, the material fact of their lives right now is this uh, mitigation um, of self present presentation. So um, students are highly aware of. Uh, the kind of the stitches and the social skin, you know, what separates my body from yours, what separates theirs from their environment, but also the fact of those stitches. So there's this uh, like constant material concern with uh, connectedness, even when that, that connectedness feels insufficient. Um, and so I, I wonder if, if it's the type of thing where you go so far into uh, isolation or the the uh, appearance of isolation that you're suddenly highly aware of your togetherness of your connectedness mm -hmm. um, for me it was uh, very much a, a, a journey of um, rejecting any form of connection um, until I got, got to the point uh, where I I was just so desperate for uh, community um, that the kind of coming back to uh, accepting uh, friendships, relationships at all was also a realization that I'd never gotten away from them. Um, one of, you know, one of the characteristics of uh, active addiction alcoholism is isolation. It's an illness of isolation. And one of the cures for it is community. Um, it's a remarkable fact uh, to me that, 
um, so many of those malalignments or uh, maladaptive coping mechanisms we have for the, the uh, burns of community are more community is more community. Um, so I, you know, in terms of a generational divide, um, I think we also have um, a different type of interface between us and the world. Um, and, you know, it's I often don't know the nationality of people that I'm interacting with on a regular basis. And then, you know, they'll use, uh, for instance, a friend yesterday uh, referred to a portrait I'd painted as being kind of Heathcliff. And in the way he said it was like, it's a little bit Heathcliff, isn't it? And I was like, oh shit, you're British. Like, all right, <laughs> I didn't realize. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. And I wonder, um, I wonder about, um, how we could quantify, I guess I'd have to ask a sociologist to help me understand that, you know, this question of how, how could we qualify or quantify uh, the extent to which we, my generation values or feels or is in fact uh, uh, community minded or individualistic. I'm of the persuasion personally that, um, you know, the greatest asset and greatest uh, weakness of, democracy as a structural system and certainly my lived experience of it uh, is the fact of the individual um, is the fact that baked into the dna of of this country is uh you know this sort of notion of specialness um yeah. you know that that's such a such a vulnerability it is such a vulnerability not just for the individual who then becomes uh, wrought by isolation uh not just of concept, but of national identity. Um, and then also as a system, um, of course, what we're seeing right now is that our, our, the greatest threat um, uh, to the fabric of our national DNA right now is the fact that uh, we don't have a cohesive narrative. You know, we don't yeah. have a uniting story. Um, there is no pride in Americanism. Why would there be right now? You know, there is pride and in individual aspects of identity but um but the notion that i can say well i am american and that's what makes me i mean on one side of the, the political spectrum you you might get a bit more unification from that um but for the most part i think even you know no matter where one falls on the spectrum there is still the sense of like at the end of the day i have to have my back um yeah that's oof that's mm. That's intimidating. Yeah, that, that's the kind of implicit contradiction, isn't it? That uh, this vast, uh, really rich, kind of rapacious culture is fueled really by ideas. And when the ideas start to crack up, there isn't much left to hold it together. And we're yeah. in a moment where I think the idea of the country is cracking up. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what a beautiful a opportunity. Yes, exactly. A, a gorgeous yeah. opportunity. I mean, this, you know, this shell is broken, <laughs> done been broken. <laughs> How cool that, uh, that we can, you know, sit through or move through, uh, hopefully, um, this kind of, a, I don't know, metamorphosis or unfolding time will tell, um, and yeah. say, this is what we'd rather move toward. Yeah. Why don't we get a chance to listen a little bit to your writing? So why don't you sure. like to work and, uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, you can tell us either before or after a little bit about it and then uh, read a little bit from it. Sure. Um, I'll start with a narrative. I, 
a narrative poem. Fingers on a Gay Man. A pair of adolescent boys grabs a rabbit to shear off its ears. It doesn't matter why, whether they're sad or from the city. What matters is what they do with their hands. Hold the blade, hang the rabbit by its ears. But the rabbit says, I met a truck stop priest in Mississippi outside Books a Million. Should I tell you what he said? And the boys pause to consider, so he continues. We sat into the night talking about anything. His gay ex-wife who practices witchcraft, masturbation with vacuum hoses, his fetish for boys' leg hairs like your own. They giggle at this and scream, set the rabbit down and listen. The priest in his collar and cross necklace spoke. Though his face transformed, he grew freckles where there weren't any freckles. He grew beards where his chin was smooth, and his eyes were more ancient than all the lakes in Mississippi. What did he say? What did he say? The boys demand, wanting to learn more than anything. Continues the rabbit. The faces spoke, not the priest, in voices that traveled to my brain. They taught me lessons. First, that every soul is a thread in a cloth that floats through black everything, sparkling like snow into a lake. So you and I and everyone we know are iterations of these souls, these cloths, some newly woven and some old. The boys, what else did the faces say? The rabbit. They said that they and I were of a single cloth, of the type who dies and rises again. And what about us? What about us? Demand the boys. And the rabbit jumps off the rock and runs because the boys hold a knife and can't recognize a parable or my face, however human. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. Yeah, lovely poem. It's, uh, it's narrative, but it has such wonderful abstraction and it goes in such surprising directions. So... Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's near and dear. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, one of the questions uh, we asked before you come, people come on the show is about essential truths. And your answer was so fabulous. It, uh, you said that uh, I'm not sure I believe in essential truths. So maybe the, I wanted to turn it and say, what do you think are the essential questions? Mm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, I'm so glad you quoted me. I would have had no idea what I thought at the time I answered <laughs> the question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have whims. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's this fabulous, uh, these fabulous couple of lines that always come to mind to me from, I think it's the red poppy, uh, Blue's Glick. Um, the, the flower says, um, feelings. Oh, I have those. They govern me. Um, I always wanted to think of myself as a head person, and I've never been a head person. I've always been a heart person. Um, and, and those are the questions that, that we keep asking. Um, the essential questions um, are the ones that come closer to, uh, closer to the instinct, I think. Uh, I'm motivated by needing things, shelter, affection, touch, 
Um, and so I question into that, um, who is threatening me? Where am I safe? Who's offering love? How can I give love? Um, <clears throat> who am I? <laughs> um, yeah. When we were talking earlier, uh, I think before the interview started, I'm not sure I mentioned um, that fiction, the novelist Robert Owen Butler, uh, uh, he talks a lot about yearning. Um, when he teaches writing fiction, he talks about yearning as this sort of like independent, almost indefinable uh, quality of existence. And, um, and it's a seeking after, a striving toward. Um, seeking after, of course, is language that we you know, translate from Sappho. Um, we're, we're striving toward uh, something or someone always. Uh, mm. Moving toward wanting. I always think about the trope especially along the terms of um, alcoholism I think about the image of the the hungry ghost uh, or the idea of the hungry ghost as this sort of like bottomless pit or continuous appetite um, when we're wanting as we're wanting what do we move toward and what is it that either impedes that journey um, or you know is right behind us with with teeth um, trying to prevent us from getting there. <laughs> Do you mean yeah. the hungry ghost in Tibetan um, in the tr Tibetan tradition? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I love yeah. their their necks are so thin that they can't consume food or water, and they're utterly insatiable. You know that. Uh, yeah, just yeah. <laughs> just want to cry just hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. also, it's like how cravings and how uh, you know, kind of this this idea of like. Uh, in everyday life, how we were just like always searching for something, always kind of yearning for something, as you were saying, like we're always we feel focusing on the lack rather than the abundance, you know, focusing mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. what we're lacking rather than what we have plenty of. And, it, and I think it's like perceptual shift. It's like thinking about the life in terms of, you know, that I have everything I need versus uh, things I have <laughs> are outside of me and, and things I have are things I need to chase after. So that's so, yeah, that's so helpful. I mean, it, in terms of earlier, you know, we were talking about poems, love poems versus other types of poems. What makes love poems difficult? I think that's probably the most beautiful answer. Uh, it's like, well, it's, it's a shift in perception. If you're focusing on love as a thing, of, uh, as a scarce or scant uh, quality or resource, yeah. it's going to be very hard to write abundantly about that. Yeah. Um, is that beautiful? That's beautiful. Bjork lyrics, all is full of love. I play that song every New Year's as kind of an anthem. Like, <laughs> just don't forget, don't forget. You know, the the phone is off the hook. Is all <laughs> like, if you're not receiving, the phone is off the hook. <laughs> oh wow, that's uh, that's good. Very very true. Very true. Um, Maybe we could start to talk a little bit about your work as an editor and uh, and teacher and some of your observations about uh, what you see in other people's work, I guess, uh, and uh, what's coming across your transom, what your colleagues on the uh, magazine are talking about and what's on their minds right now. Because I think a lot of our read, our audience, our, certainly our guests, yeah. many of them are writers, and um, there can always be a bit of a uh, shift in uh, perspective from a writer to an editor's point of view. And I'm sure this is a yeah. challenge to carry on internally yourself, but just putting on your editor hat for a little bit. Um, what, what do you see out there? Sure. So the, 
the first thing that comes to mind is differentiating between narrative and lyric. Um, and we're in at present a largely high lyric moment um, to the extent that there, there are many times in some of the most popular poetry, um, most like hyper connections rather than literal or uh, even obvious associative connections between uh, the material stuff of a poem. So some of the most popular poetry makes these sort of these sorts of leaps um, with language, with feeling um, <clears throat> that are very beautiful, um, as opposed to uh, you know a, a century of experimentation um, with form and meaning that was consistently investigative. Um, uh, in, in the very substance of the language, uh, what I see more frequently um, is poetry that's already done the work of investigating and is providing a sort of like a substance, the, sort of a fusing out of that. Um, and so I'm thinking of um, poetry that speaks from, or speaks through archetype. Uh, I see a lot of poetry that assumes a sort of archetypal identity of its speaker um, or uh, that speaks directly into and unmistakably about subjective personal experience. Um, what do I, what are people writing right now? Uh, I just got an email about a submission that had been withdrawn this morning um, and I can't remember the title, but it was basically like COVID, you know, <laughs> the poem was like COVID poem. Um, like we're, we're writing about the present moment um, and, it, and it also largely depends on uh, who one is as a writer, it, how long one takes on a poem. Um, you know, some of these poems reflect the, the meditative concerns of yesteryear um, and some of them are like today, what day is today? Today, October 5th, you know, I'm, I'm eating broccoli and uh, God had a body. Uh, my Italian sparkly and mineral water comes across my deck, you know. Um, maybe you don't know. Maybe that made absolutely no sense. Um, <laughs> so I see, I see um, a lot of high lyric poetry, uh, but also depending on the publisher, what, uh, some incredible poetry in, in translation. One of my favorite presses, uh, Wave Books, um, continues to introduce me to new writers um, or to old writers that are new to me. Um, one of my favorite books to come out this year is the Selected Works of Yi Sang, um, translated, uh, edited by Donnie Choi and translated by Choi and a few others, uh, Jack Jung, for example. Um, and so like, if, for me, I've kind of like, I've taken to thinking about presses um, like there's submissions and in the submission queue, you can get just about anything you can imagine um, from like a picture of a person's dog uh, next to like a couple of lines about that dog, uh, like a literal picture um, to like a, a rhymed and metered sonnet um, to like a failed pantoum. Um, but then when I, when I think about presses, they I love the way that individual presses sort of develop this identity. Um, I look to wave books for um, 
for a particular type of thinking or experimentation or for quality translation, I looked uh, uh, for our Strauss and Giroux for um, established uh, authors or established forms, et cetera. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. When, when people are sending their poems to us, it's such a delight that there is uh, an enormous gamut um, of work that we get to consider um, from the traditional to the totally experimental, uh, from the, the really well wrought to the incredibly raw. Um, I discovered a poet through the submission queue just last week that I'm like, I don't know how to shout this person's name loudly enough. It, just reading the packet, it's maybe so far, and I'm just like, this person's going to win every award, you know, every single award. Mm. Um, it's, it's really an honor um, to get to see uh, the full wave of submissions and, and you know, try to uh, appreciate each tiny fissure in that wave. Mm. Can you tell us the name of the person who excited you last in the queue last week? God, I didn't tell you my own name if people hadn't been telling it to me for 30 years. Uh-huh. Um, let me... Let me see. I sent an email immediately to my editors and was like, hi, please move on this. <laughs> oh, um, While you're looking, let me just remind the listeners, this is the Truth to Power show and ready for Brooklyn. I'm here with Bruce Whitaker and Zach Lindsay. Uh, we're talking a little bit about poetry and uh, the community, community love and, and love poems and all these different topics are coming up. Um, Zach is looking up some of the... Uh, standout poetry uh poets who come across his desk um so yeah yeah the poet's name is marissa davis mysterious cool cool and so going back to your uh comment about the uh lyric poetry having a high moment right now um, just to kind of elaborate or to, to, uh, to mirror what you're saying, um, it sounds like sort of the craft, the, the, writers, the writers submitting now has sort of solved some of their, the craft questions that they are, hmm. um, and are, uh, are really taking it to a new level. And, and the, mm-hmm. the, the matchup of kind of container and contents is, is, pretty solid in terms of what people are trying to do and how they achieve those goals. Is that, is that kind of what you're seeing or? Or the concerns have shifted is probably Mm -hmm. a a truer way to say it. Um, You know, I I think at every point the poet has been forced to do work on and off the page. Um, As we consider our epistemologies and ontologies, um, as we think about how do we construct a thing of being responsibly, uh, the responsibly is such a huge part of our off the page consciousness right now um, that when we come to the page, there are certain assumptions that we work with and, and some of them question, some not. So for example, I um, when I read the last hundred years of poetry, I, we would not have uh, the theory that grants an individual's experience value without the extreme work that we have done to give that to give more individuals value. Um, the ideas of, uh, like, I'm just thinking about just the transition between second and third wave feminism as being like 
characteristic of that switch. It's like, we can claim everyone has value. Sure, um, that's cute. Uh, and, and, or we can look at the fact that uh, there are severe limitations to our uh, having an ambition toward a thing versus making that thing possible. Um, so yeah, I think more work has been done off the page. And I also think that there's, um, um, there's a lot more freedom to, to explore um, traditional subjects now that we've spent some time reevaluating form, um, mm. reevaluating form. Uh, we have, I, I have the liberty, for example, to publish a, a parabolistic poem um, in prose block form. I'm, like line was never a, a contributing factor to how I thought about the structure of that text. Um, that would have been very difficult if, you know, if it were the 1970s, maybe not so difficult in the 80s, but um, there's a time and a place for each of these types of forms and each of these considerations. And right now, the, the considerations that we have access to um, <clears throat> aren't quite as informed uh, or as constrained, rather, uh, by traditional forms. Hmm. Yeah, it's like we're in dialogue with uh, all these different structures and, and forms and, and questioning. I think a lot of times the Zeitgeist seems to be questioning, uh, you know, in what way are they, or we can subvert and sustain, you know, both subvert and sustain or sustain and subvert, you know, well, because when you keep the form going, but it's yeah. a question, it's themes or question what the way this view, worldview you know, the worldview that's underpinning, like, for example, the ode, it's like the ode, mm -hmm. we were discussing in a poetry class, how the ode was like idealizing, and, and how now we have poets who are trying to uh, look at the, the flaws in the system, or flaws in the, the object of, of adoration, you know, yeah. and looking at how it's, how we can look at um, an object, not unromantically, but unromantically, but rather look at like, as it is, you know, as the thing is. Mm -hmm. so, Sharon Olds's odes, for example, Ode, Ode to Withered Cleavage, gorgeous poem. Um, yeah. um, you know, um, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, if we talk about fundamentals or like lasting questions of poetry, the Ode is such a, a great uh, history of uh, form and genre to look at because um, its precedents transcend uh, space and time. Um, yeah. I'm thinking, for example, of the first named poet in history, Nehedwana, who was writing, she said, an African priestess who was writing 4,400 years ago. Um, and her temple hymns have some of the same, like, core qualities or characteristics that we would see um, in Grecian, and, uh, you know, for example, the Homeric hymns. Or, um, I mean, it's incredible to me that we'll look at, we look at these uh, these early urges, these early outpourings, recorded outpourings of desire. Um, and what do they have in common? Well, these people are looking for prestige for one. Uh, they're looking to establish themselves. And how are they doing that? Well, they're, they're paying their respects to something that is already established. Mm. Um, and now <laughs> what is the established thing worth paying one's respect to? Well, it's not a temple. Uh, it's the body. Uh, it's, the physical world. Um, I mean, I of course think of Whitman as being uh, someone that we move through uh, toward that type of ode. Um, mm. That's so cool. That's, I'm sorry. I'm 
She's like, that's so exciting to me that uh, our old gods are dead and we can decide what we want to worship. Yeah. How cool is that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the trick is that sometimes when you pick your new god, you find the old god be standing right there behind them. You know? Yeah. And as soon as we've negotiated with form, to a certain extent, we return to the same old topics. It's exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's just a morphing or transformations that each time, each moment, we're like, Picking something just a little bit different, but then, you know, and then each, and then when we look at back, it's like, oh, this is radically different, but only when in that each year or each day, we're picking something, just, you know, that's progressing. I think I do believe in the idea of progression and the idea of um, moving forward and we're moving forward step by step, but it's only in, in retrospect that we see, mm. you know, how contrasting our views are and how mm. contrasting generational views are and all that. But I, you know, a lot of times people are, are comparing the the boomer generation to uh, millennial, but then there was, of course, there's the Gen X in between that, you know, kind of bridged the two. And kind of, you know, we had, uh, in, in my generation, you know, we had the uh, kind of bridging gap where we're like, we're just starting to get to know technology in our, in our uh, um, coming of age, you know, and then uh, the kind of impact that had the psyche of Gen X and how, uh, they were able to coach or, or guide millennials into, you know, or, or whatever it is, you know. Yeah, we can use social media, but we can't pay our mortgages. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Earlier, what you were saying just brought us right back to uh, Vijay. One of the first things you said, a shift, a shift in perspective. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about, or when both of you were talking about the old gods standing directly be- behind the new gods, they might be wearing different faces, wearing different masks. Um, but the phone is off the hook, or it's on the hook. You know, I'm accepting love, and or I'm not accepting it. I'm seeing the thing for what it is, or I'm not seeing it. I love the notion of progress. I'm not sure uh, if I believe in progress in, in the terms of like. Uh, time scales uh, that I'm I'm used to thinking about. I'm not sure if I believe in like uh, the sort of like <clears throat> hero's journey, uh, collective hero's journey into a, a better place and anything other than cyclical attempts to continue to like bluntly uh, run our heads into the future until we emerge somewhere else. I think about, for example, um, the city of, uh, or the area of Cordoba, uh, in like, for example, 11th to 13th centuries and how this was a, a, an area of um, wonderful trade and interreligious and uh, interracial like uh, interaction and harmony. And it's this gorgeous gem that lasts 300 years, <laughs> like 300 years of this where uh, people of all different creeds and areas uh, and contributions come together, united by a concept, and then kind of fade out. I'm I'm wondering if we might see, rather than the sort of line toward the future, uh, rather these little like bubbles that generally get hotter. You know, and maybe yeah. we'll we'll get to that boiling point of a progress. Um, and I really love to uh, to subscribe to the notion that we as uh, societies can progress in the way that I believe we can as individuals. And I guess if we can individually, why not collectively? Yeah, it seems like, um, you know, what you're discussing here is like, uh, um, what was I thinking? Sorry, I get distracted by 
my cat started scratching. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, this idea of progress, because um, oh, yeah. I think the, uh, I, the, uh, the play Coast of Utopia, which is an exploration of Russian progressives of the 19th century, basically, um, it's a Tom, um, I'm blank, <laughs> great British playwright. Stoppard? Uh, Tom Stoppard play. It's a trilogy. But the, the central finding I took away from that, this massive trilogy studying the, like the pre-Lenin, uh, what became communist uh, philosophers, was that concepts of progress often lead to fascism. There's a kind of, if you're driving toward a game of progress, you will trample people on your way and you will roll mm. things and you'll use power in that way. And I think people have become apprehensive about that kind of progress. Um, and, you know, Cordoba and the trading world was very much driven by the idea of expansion of some kind and acquisition and so forth. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you can't, uh, if your objective is that kind of thing, then that's one kind of progress, which has kind of driven us for the last five centuries or so. But I'm hoping there's a possibility we can look at another kind of progress, which is basically expanding opportunity and bringing people along who have not yeah. been included and listening to them. Mm -hmm. And it's not sort of centrally or uh, driven by the great man, the great woman, mm -hmm. um, sing the singular vision. Um, but it's hard for humans to work without a singular vision to pull them together. And uh, yeah. that's, again, the paradox we're kind of facing it a bit a broken up moment like this where we can go either way. Yeah. Um, What's the going, unifying narrative? Yeah. Well, how are we going to pull out of this cultural and economic pause? Are we going to be mm -hmm. better? Are we going to exacerbate the worst? Um, mm -hmm. Those are the conflicts and it's a very historic hinge. Um, mm -hmm. And it has been repeated. It's happened dozens of times, you know, at the yeah. collapse of Cordoba, it was a moment like this for them. Yeah. You know, the creation of Cordoba was a moment like this for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And who's, who's writing that narrative and how do we create a narrative, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, a, you know, a, a place that's comprised of its constituent parts, uh, what's the connective binding? What's that connective material? Um, I, yeah, concepts of progress will lead to fascism. Yeah, wow. Um, especially if governed by that, you know, the iron fist, you know, the great man, the big brother type, sure. Um, yeah, and I love this, this idea of thinking into um, community uh, and listening outward to community, uh, to one's community as the most as a radical form of politics. It's um, astounding to me uh, that it's so difficult to conceive of um, and, and yet not unfamiliar at all. I'm trying to write love poems and I can't see outside of myself. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. actively living with someone whom I love. And anytime I try to say, uh, hold my hand, uh, you know, I'm, I'm instead slapping the hand that comes toward me. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also say yeah. that uh, sometimes there's unrealistic narratives about, you know, with this idealization, we were talking a little bit about the Odin, how it idealizes, how it uh, creates mm -hmm. a, a false narrative sometimes about um, beauty and about uh, perfection. And uh, in general, I think this society has been creating this like 
idealized, hyper real, you know, kind of not grounded vision for society where, you know, we we're expe expectations are so high and, you know, you're expected as an individual to, you know, overcome all obstacles and, and go off on your own and, and be a self-made man. But at the same time, mm. you know, you're, you're working with community and, you know, and how the, how that vision of the American dream or the vision of the, um, all these kinds of stuff, all these kinds of narratives you have about the ideal family and, you know, the kind of gender norms, all those kinds of things in which the traditional values have been built on, you know, and how those things yeah. are being questioned and how those things are, uh, because of the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, it's at great expense, you know, it's creating, uh, a generation yeah. or, or a society that is, um, you know, breaking itself down to breaking its back to just hold up that vision, you know, and, and how we have subsequent generations yeah. who are questioning that and, and living in, and then drawing yeah. from their lived experience. The old yeah. gods are dead. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah, the old gods are dead, and the, the the fact is they didn't change. You know, <laughs> they yeah. didn't go anywhere. Um, it, it's again a shift in, in perspective. Like, I mean, pointing to something like uh, gender or the family structure. I mean, like this is, of course, these are abstractions with very real consequences. <laughs> mm, yeah. um, <clears throat> like, yeah, let's let's say my god's name is Bob. Well, I've been talking for you know, however many hundreds of years about Bob as if uh, he had black hair. And then we yeah. find, you know, physics teaches us that black doesn't exist. So now I have to think of a different way to think of Bob's hair. And yeah. I'm going to like, you know, smack my, my sister or like brother, you know, and, and they're going to come back to me with, and put the stake in my yard, you know, or like a yeah. signpost or something. We're going to get real mad about Bob's hair. Um, and, and it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of charming and how like insignificant those little uh, misunderstandings are. But yeah, I, I mean, the gods didn't go anywhere. Uh, we just started to conceive of them a little bit differently. Yeah. And the color of Bob's hair has been uh, a cause of massacres and, uh, right. uh, you know, yeah. empires have been built on the color of Bob's hair all the way along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, the the conundrum of humanity will be endlessly entertaining to someone. Um, yeah, it's oh, a gorgeous <laughs> sentence. Yeah. So um, as we start to wind down, I just want to tell people that uh, this is Truth to Power Show. Ready for Brooklyn? Ready for Brooklyn is a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization whose mission is to support the community and uh, you know kind of amplify voices. Um, if you'd like to donate to Ready for Brooklyn. Uh, you're more than uh, we, we'd be more than happy to kind of accept your support. Uh, readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, you can also go to uh, readyforbrooklyn.org slash uh, newsletter to keep up with our uh, upcoming events and get get in, get information such as we did the um, Wall of Lies. Ready for Brooklyn had a uh, uh, interactive display uh, this past weekend. Uh, where they had uh, um, a wall of like 20,000 lies that are uh, misleading statements that uh, Trump said over the course of his presidency. So they, they did like a, a, a public art public art display where they put up the statements mm. and gave it various degrees and color of, um, of, of lies. So you can find out more about that and, and all the different great work that Rachel Brooklyn's doing. 
Um, so thank you. And we still have a little bit of time, but I want to do that announcements just to get that out of the way. But um, so now, do you want to? Do you have a short work that you like to read just to close this out? Or sure, um, I have one. It might take just a couple minutes. Yeah, but I think that'll be. I think we have just enough time. Perfect. Yeah. Um, this poem is called Branches. And suddenly, expectedly. Mothers started to reach their arms, fists to elbows, down their children's mouths and throats, into the sugar-laden lining of the stomach. Fathers did too. Husbands, their wives, their husbands' throats. Sisters, their brothers, their mothers. And my brothers even reached into a man on the street with a paper crane. We'd been told we would find some new pleasure there. We had a notion the insides held answers to all our untenable questions. A teenager might go missing for days, so her mother would plunge down the tongues of the kid's friends. The missing girl's sister, alone in a bedroom, would choke on her own crackling elbows, grasping for what she might have forgotten. Each time an arm was pulled out of a mouth, it came coated. In short, once inside, the limb made a cast like a silicone mold of whatever it touched. Impressions like pink dishwashing gloves made of blood, guts, and dinner drew out of the head like a yawn. The coating sloughed whole off the arm, intact, peeled off as a swim cap, thick as wax, and wriggling with rubbery veins. People would squeeze off these casts and leave them indiscriminately anywhere. They called these the branch arm for their likenesses to roots to the trunks of young trees. Streets were littered with branches. In living rooms, people made shelves of the things. Having been asked through the stomach for answers, I myself grew a crop of unreachable questions. I phoned mother, told her I'd be coming home soon, then got a hold of her spleen and found nothing. I left her with those first little branches, dripping, inspected, and thrown on the eaves. I branched out to others, my sister, whose roof in Houston thatched casts of her, her husband's, her little boy's innards, sequences of strangers whose bare naked knees ground my rug to its stitches, who entered through any obtainable hole, dropped into me for answers and left empty-handed, the veins on their fingers and the cracks of my grin. I reached out to the preacher, but found only wafers and prison-grade beef. I littered the drippings of politicians and recycled a stack of historians' suppers. Of late, I've been thinking around the question of my sensitive lover's insides. I haven't reached often, though I wouldn't say never. His fifth and sixth kidneys are swinging on cords over the sink to dry. I reached deep, but not lately or again. We could make us a pact to prevent reaching, could stitch half our fingers together, could start fresh from so nice to meet you. See my lips, how they part like a seed. Listen as I ask him to balance his fingers on the buds at the tip of my tongue. Watch how I trust the gap in his teeth without seeing whether my fist might fit through them. We could stop at the space at the edge of a lip where the trace of our fathers stitched into our hides. Intestines and in circles that coil around our feet with the sleeves of their innards as punctuation for our pores, their hair in the thick of our skin. We could listen. Thank you. Thank what you. A what a journey, my guy. Yeah. <laughs> Very nicely done. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank 
Thank you. Thank you both so much for, for having me and having this conversation with me this morning. It's been such a delight to meet you. Thank you. Oh, thank indeed. You. It has been for us as well, Zach. Thank you. And um, so you're uh, carrying on a semester remotely this this yeah. uh, semester. And um, yeah. how are the students holding up with this? Yeah, the babies. Um, you know, as, as the rest of us, uh, with whims uh, and sometimes poorly. Um, but one of the things that I'm personally grateful for, and I think many of them are too, is there's at least the semblance of normalcy and deadlines. Um, so having things we have to do uh, can be quite helpful. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was very clear with them about from the beginning of class is like, this will be a strange term. And if we need to make changes, we make changes. Um, and so one week I canceled uh, one of the videos. I usually upload two lectures a week. I canceled one of them and, and just checked in. Um, mm. And students had the option of just writing a little check-in note on their discussion board, letting us know how they were. Uh, and they had the option of just skipping it. Um, this week, I am not doing videos because I totaled my car. <laughs> so circumstance uh. gets in the way and we just, we accommodate it as much as mm. we can. And, and I think that they're all doing that very graciously, very beautifully. Thank you. Well, thank good. You. Well, so, good luck to you and your students. Also, thank why don't you. we just tell people your website or places people can, I'm sure people can Google you, sure. but you know, if you tell people, people where people can follow you and all that. Sure. So my name is Zach Lingy, Z-A-C-H-L-I-N-G-E. And my website is ZachLingy.com. My Twitter handle is Zach Lingy. Great, great. So, um, yeah, so this is the Truth to Power show. We're every Monday at 8 a.m. We have some great conversations. If you guys would like to listen to the archives, we have about, I think it's like about 150 or, or approaching 150 about uh, in a couple, in a month or so. Um, so I think we're around 140 something. Um, so yeah, so it'd be great uh, to have you guys uh, listen to the show um, and follow the follow the show. Um, what 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 are some of your favorite music? Uh, that might be a nice way to end. <laughs> what's some of my favorite music? Yeah, what's your, what's the first concert you went to? Oh. Um, I'm not the first, but the most significant concert I went to was uh, Neutral Milk Hotel when they reunited for uh, for Austin City Limits. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, both of you. BJ, always good to see you. And Zach, good luck with everything. I look forward to seeing more of your work soon. Likewise. Very good much so. Okay. Cool. All right. Bye-bye. Ciao now. Bye-bye.